Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, Magic and Alchemy is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kristen Lizenby, and my co-host, Kate Ballou. Hello, and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kristen Lizenby. And I'm Kate Ballou. What is our listener question today, Kate? Yeah, for our listener question today, Gypsy Moon Rituals wrote in and asked us, um, what is your favorite grounding ritual after a terrible week? This is a great question. I think it's also just right on time for the holiday season. So I have to ask, what's your response, Kristen? This is a really good question, and normally I would say gardening or some activity where you can literally get your hands and feet dirty and reconnect with the earth and the ground beneath our feet, but as we are going into the dark months right now, and very few of us have the luxury of living somewhere where we can work with plants and be digging around in the dirt year-round, I'm going to suggest that working with water specifically cold water, can be pretty grounding after a hard day. And, you know, this is just my hot take, but I'm not, you know, talking about drinking cold water, but bathing in it, standing in it for five minutes, maybe after you take, you know, like a hot steamy shower. Um, At the end of the day, you can turn it to cold and stand there for a few minutes Um, because submerging our body in cold water is not only, you know, exhilarating, just think about jumping in the ocean on a hot day, but it's also believed to strengthen our immune system, improve mood, regulate our sleep cycles and lower cortisol levels. Um, And this is sometimes referred to as cold therapy, if anyone wants to look it up and read more about it. Uh, But I also hate being cold. So if your first (laughs) response to this is no, um, I totally get it. Um, But just an idea. What do you think, Kate? Yeah, I'm like sitting here with like a blanket and a space heater. I'm like, well, (laughs) I don't know. But, you know, it it is true. Like there's a lot of bathhouses here in New York City. There's some like cool bathhouse culture, but um, they have cold plunges at Mm. those. And I have (laughs) really gritted my teeth and done them before. And it is it is truly magical. Um, And Mm -hmm. this kind of reminds me of like our, our water magic episode, too. Um, if folks are looking for more kind of water magic, we kind of go into the depths there and and that Mm -hmm. might be helpful. But, you know, for me, I I use kind of a calling my energy back ritual to kind of help me ground. And, you know, this can be great as a part of a like meditation practice or some other sort of like daily thing, which I think, you know, rituals and routines can be so helpful for grounding. I just know that for myself. Um, And I wrote the whole ritual up And so it's on the Tamed Wild blog. So listeners, you can find it at tamedwild.com. 
Um, but basically a calling your energy back ritual. It's just a simple ritual. You can keep it in your magical toolbox. You can just rely on it if you're feeling like ungrounded or scattered or if, you know, parts of your energy body have just been left in like external conversations or contracts or agreements. Like I know if I like have back-to-back meetings all day, like this is, uh, this is exactly when I use it, but, um, Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes without realizing it, our energy can like become fragmented. And so the simple ritual can just kind of like remind you of your sovereignty and your wholeness and just kind of like a moment to just call it all back. Um, So listeners, if you try it, please let me know. I'd love to hear how it goes for you. Yeah, same here. If any of you out there have your own grounding rituals, let us know. And I'm also excited to continue our series today on mythological creatures. Yeah, me too. Um, We spoke last week about the unicorn and the phoenix, uh, but um, mythological creatures have captured the imagination of humanity for as long as people and stories have existed. So mermaids, the fae, the phoenix, unicorns, basilisks, griffins, these living myths inspire, challenge, and offer us lessons if only we would listen. So, listeners, for this series, Kristen and I are telling the tales of different mythical beasts and their stories. This week, we'll be focusing on mermaids and the she. Like in our last episode, when Kate professed her love to the unicorn, I think I could do the same when it comes to today's mythical creature, because my first love was the mermaid. As a child, the movie The Little Mermaid was in constant rotation, both the Disney classic we all know and the more tragic Hans Christian Andersen version. Even though these movies are quite different, there are some similarities between these stories and really most tales out there that speak of the merfolk in regards to their appearance, mystery, and song. Kristen, how excited are you for the new live-action Little Mermaid, though? I'm so excited. Yes. Like, I can't wait. (laughs) So good. Yes, my inner child is just ready for it. But, you know, as we know, mermaids are aquatic beings, either ruling our oceans as we see in traditional pirate tales, myths like the Odyssey or stories of Aphrodite, said to be the goddess from which mermaids evolved. But occasionally, mermaids take up residence in freshwater lakes and rivers, like we see with the Rizalki. The Rizalki, or Rizalka, singular, comes from Slavic culture, and although they are categorized as mermaids, in many stories, they have legs instead of fins. In Slavic folklore, the Rizalki spend most of their time in the water, but can also walk on land, dance in gardens, and climb trees. From my article via the Shapeshifter series on the Tamed Wild blog, Rizalka Week, also known as Green Week, was traditionally the first week of June. During these nights, the Rizalki were in charge. For mortals, swimming was forbidden. During these days, the nymphs left the lakes and rivers to climb birch trees and hang from weeping willows. They also danced, and if you were gullible enough to join a Rizalka ring, you would be cursed to continue until you fell dead from exhaustion. 
Despite the sinister warnings surrounding Rizolka Week, most believe that this seven-day event stemmed from local summer solstice celebrations. Although Slavic pagans focused on fertility and agriculture during midsummer, themes of death and decay were never far from mind. Perhaps this is part of the reason the Rizolki were seen as harbingers of death. From that same article, I shared that, Along the Danube River, the Rizolki are helpful spirits who venture onto land to dance beneath the moonlight. As the water beads off their pale bodies and onto the earth, it leaves a mysterious Rizolki ring, similar to a fairy ring, to nourish the farmer's fields. In Polish lore, the Rizolki resemble the beautiful yet deadly sirens who lure men to the water's edge only to grab hold of their hands and drag them to a watery death. In northern Russia, there is nothing enticing about these creatures, not song nor appearance. They are hideous, menacing beings that lie in wait, hoping to ambush humans who are naive to their enchantments. Although some see the Rizolki as dangerous, others sympathize with them. Many say that the Rizolki are women who died young and are grieving their premature deaths. They likely feel bound by unfinished business in the mortal realm since, supposedly, the Rizolki house the spirits of women who died near water. Like the mermaid, the Rizolki can be dangerous, but according to stories, they mainly direct their anger towards men. Same. And Baba- <laughs> we understand. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> like, I, I had to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, In Baba Yaga's book of witchcraft, Slavic magic from the Witch of the Woods, author Madame Pamita, who was on the podcast just a few weeks ago, shares her reimagining of the famous Slavic tale, Vasilisa the Beautiful. In the story, Vasilisa gives the Rizolki a gift, a piece of her clothing, and they help the girl carry her items across the river so she can reach Baba Yaga's hut. In fact, they even give her directions. So to say that the Rizolki are pure evil is not the case, but like all water spirits, roamers of the deep, they are a bit slippery and their trust must be earned. Also in Baba Yaga's Book of Witchcraft, it says that the Rizolki are some of the most ancient spirits. Their mother's name is Berhinia. She is associated with the Tree of Life and is seen as a mother to all. Her children rule our sacred waters and appear to be like any other beautiful mortal, their only tell being their long green hair. It's said that the Rizolki are more active in fall, especially during full moons, which, you know, is pretty much right now as we record this and feels fitting as the veil thins around us. If we farm or grow our own food, we can offer the Rizolki blessings for an abundant, healthy harvest. In her book, Madame Pamita says that when the stalks of wheat wave to us from our fields, this is a positive omen. However, when neglected, the Rizolki can bring about storms and blight. Madame Pamita also suggests that we might think of the Rizolki the same as we think of Baba Yaga. When speaking of them, she says, quote, Both are liminal and potentially dangerous spirits of nature. Baba Yaga of the earth and the woods, the Rizolka of the water and bodies of water. They are both master spinners and weavers, and they both wear their hair loose and break the norms of society. It's no wonder that Baba Yaga refers to them as her sisters. They are the sunnier version of her shady persona. 
perhaps shapeshifter that she is, she takes on the form of these beautiful watery mermaids whenever the weather gets warm and she'd like to go for a swim, end quote. Mm, I loved that section in the book so much. Yeah, me too. It's beautiful. And your mention about the Rusalka and, and Polish mermaids really reminds me of the story of the mermaid of Warsaw. Do you know it? No, I don't. Tell me. So, well, there are a few legends about the mermaid of Warsaw, but her relationship to the Warsaw Uprising is how I first heard about her tale. There's actually a mural here in Greenpoint that kind of has her depiction on it, which is really cool. I'll have to take a picture for you, but... In Warsaw, the city's literature and tour guides say that the mermaid decided to stay after stopping at a riverbank near the old town. So fishermen noticed that something was creating waves and tangling nets and releasing their fish, and they planned to trap the animal, but then they heard her singing and fell in love. A rich merchant trapped and imprisoned the mermaid. Hearing her cries, the fishermen rescued her. Ever since, the mermaid, armed with a sword and a shield, has been ready to help protect the city and its residents. You can find her image on various statues there. My favorite is one that the revolutionary Polish poet Krystyna Krahelska posed for, um, and her image is also on the coat of arms of Warsaw. Oh, I love this. I love when mermaids, like, find their way into like real life things and I'm definitely going to look up the coat of arms of Warsaw as soon as we're finished here. She's such a badass. I need to see. Mm -hmm. But going back to the Rizolki's hair. So another telling feature of the Rizolki and merfolk in general is that they possess long magical manes often shown combing their hair while peering into a mirror. From the outside, the mermaid might appear vain, but according to some stories, they are not grooming out of vanity, but survival. So according to stories, mermaids use an enchanted brush that keeps their hair wet, because if it were to dry, they would perish. There is also the belief that hair stores are magic or works as like a sort of spiritual antenna. So braiding or tying up the hair was seen as a way to preserve magical power, but when performing magic, you'd want your hair to be loose and wild and not bound in any way. Uh, This way you could, as Baba Yaga's book of witchcraft suggests, freely traverse the realms of spirit. People with short hair or no hair can practice this type of magic as well by wearing a hat or tying a piece of cloth on the head to conserve energy and ritually removing it when they wish to cast spells. That's so beautiful. And it just reminds me too, like the potent power um, and the relationship between grief and hair and cutting the hair as a way to mourn ritually. Mm, yeah, Absolutely. And in Patricia Radford's Lusty Ladies, Mermaids in the Medieval Church, she says, Hair, because of its ability to regrow, relates to rebirth. Hair that was put up or covered with a cap could metaphorically be seen as lost, along with any power it was believed to possess. In the Women's Dictionary of Symbols and Sacred Objects, Barbara Walker says that when a mermaid combs her hair, she's literally engaging in magic. Because hair represents strength and is a symbol of a person's life force, tending and caring for hair was believed to enhance personal power. Mermaids were often shown combing their hair while gazing into a small handheld mirror. 
There are a few theories as to the purpose of the mirror, one being that it's a doorway to and from the other world. The fact that the mermaid is often showed holding a handheld mirror means that this access between worlds is readily available to her, but also that she can gift it to another. Other sources claim that the mermaid carries a mirror to catch light and signal to her human lovers, and others say it's a divination tool, the mermaid version of a crystal ball. In Shadows of the Goddess, The Mermaid by Scarlett de Mason, it says, quote, Her mirror, later a symbol of her vanity, originally represented the planet Venus in astrological tradition. Her abundant, flowing hair, symbolizing an abundant love potential, was also an attribute of Venus in her role as a fertility goddess. End quote. In Mermaids, Myth, Legends, and Lore by Sky Alexander, it says that the comb and the mirror would later become symbols of pride and vanity, and the medieval Christian church would use this imagery to warn of indulgence and sinful behavior. So, while we celebrate Venus for being the goddess of art and beauty and pleasure, that same concept has been flipped on the mermaid and relabeled as vanity, and I just find that so interesting. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Like, just from kind of an outside perspective, like, I never thought much about it. And I always mm-hmm. just kind of like interpreted that, or even maybe was instructed about that, that it was a vain act. Like, I'm even thinking about like Disney's Little Mermaid with like mm-hmm. some of the other mermaids, or like in Peter Pan, the mermaids, you know? Yeah. Um, what are those? Like, well, we were just trying to drown her, which I just love. But, um, I feel like that's just kind of like the patriarchal rebranding of magic and embraced sexuality. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And in addition to their appearance, mermaids are also known for their song. And depending on the story, this is either a blessing or a curse. If you were the captain of a ship... The mermaid song might safely guide you through the mist, but more likely direct you toward the rocky cliffs. Famously, in Homer's Odyssey, men put wax in their ears and the captain tied himself to the ship's mast to avoid the deadly siren song. Today, the term sirens and mermaids are often used interchangeably, but sirens were originally feathered creatures uh, more similar to birds than mermaids or finned beings. According to Hans Christian Andersen's version of The Little Mermaid, which I love so much, um, both the movie and the book, he explains that the mermaid is not a murderer, and her song is meant to calm sailors who are already destined to die at sea. He explains that, quote, They had more beautiful voices than any human being could have, and before the approach of a storm, and when they expected a ship would be lost, they swam before the vessel and sang sweetly of the delights to be found in the depths of the sea, and begging the sailors not to fear if they sank to the bottom, end quote. This theory conflicts with another from a 12th century text called King's Mirror that says mermaid sightings could mean many things, for the mermaid was an oracle. According to this text, if a mermaid appeared and threw a fish at the sailors or their boat, they were as good as dead. However, if the mermaid ate the fish or let it go, the sailors would be assured safe passage. There's a passage from The Mermaid Chair by Sue Monk Kidd that reads... In stories, poems, and myths, 
Hearing a mermaid's song was considered a haunting and hazardous experience. Typically, it lured the listener to toss aside safety and sometimes his or her whole known world and plunge into the waves. Such a leap could bring doom or it could bring salvation. Sometimes it brought both. The mermaid's song inevitably calls us to the unknown, to the impassioned world of change and possibility. Ultimately, mermaids persist in the imagination because they represent a primal human need to dive deep into the mystery of our unlived life. And I just love these words so much. And in addition to the mermaid song, this passage highlights my final mention of mermaid magic and what makes these creatures so special, and that is their mystery. Because most people who have encountered these creatures never live to tell the tale. And just kind of like a random side mention here, but my husband, Eric, he's a fisherman. And so I often tell him like mermaid fisherman lore. And one thing he now loves to tell his fellow fisherman friends is that in certain parts of the world, when a fisherman doesn't come home from work, meaning he was probably taken by the sea, people say that he married a mermaid. Which, of course, is still so sad, um, but I'm going to contradict myself now because I just said that not many people have lived to tell the tale of seeing a mermaid, uh, but there actually have been quite a few, quote, mermaid sightings, and I don't think we talk about them enough, so let's do that. Uh, but first, Kate, have you ever encountered a mermaid? Mm. Well, first, I want to say I agree with you. We don't talk about it enough. But mm -hmm. second, yes, yes, I have. But I think that the it needs to stay a bit secret for now. But I'm really excited to hear these other sightings. Okay, I have <laughs> a lot of questions here, but we will continue this conversation another time. Yes. Um, but yeah, one of these days I'm going to add your mermaid sighting to this list I have here. Um, Okay, so all of these sightings that I'm going to mention are listed in the book by Sky Alexander that I mentioned earlier, and I will add in our show notes if anyone is interested. Um, but I'll start with a sighting that was from writer DJ Conway, um, who I know we love so mm -hmm. much, Kate. Yeah, I love, listeners, love you probably books. love her. Yeah. Um, so in her book, Magical Mermaids and Water Creatures, Conway writes... I have seen only one mermaid personally, and because I had binoculars, there was no doubt what the bean was. Clearly, I saw the long, pale flash of arms and head as the mermaid leapt and played in the waves. Each time she went beneath the water, her iridescent fishtail was very visible. In her last dive, she smacked the ocean with her tail as if laughing at my astonishment. I love it. I know, me too. In the Annals of Ulster and the Annals of the Kingdom of Ireland by the Four Masters, which were ancient texts chronicling the medieval Celtic history, they list not just mermaid sightings, but captures from the years 558, 571, 887, and 1118. It says that in the capture from 887, the mermaid washed up on the Scottish coast. Its skin was white and it measured 195 feet long, including hair. Its feet were 18 feet long and fingers 7 feet long. 
In the 12th century, Suffolk locals allegedly trapped a merman in Oxford Castle for six months until he escaped. In 1493, Christopher Columbus claimed to see three mermaids in the Caribbean, although based on his description, they were not attractive at all and looked nothing like the paintings he'd seen, so it's assumed that what he actually saw were manatees. Why does it not surprise me at all that he just immediately focused on their attractiveness? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And also, we just can't believe anything that man says. But I'm just stunned still by the previous um, sighting, 18 feet and seven foot long fingers. Like, it's just so... I know. That's the thing about these sightings is they're all quite different from one another. So it's Mm -hmm. all actually pretty interesting. Super Um, interesting. And I almost didn't, you know, include Christopher Columbus's sightings for obvious reasons, but um, it actually led me to an interesting fact that in several languages, including French and Italian and Spanish, the word for mermaid is a derivative of siren. And manatees, creatures that were often confused for mermaids, belong to the order Sirenia, um, an order of fully aquatic mammals often referred to as sea cows. So cute. You know. For our next mermaid sighting in 1560, seven mermaids were allegedly captured near Ceylon. It says a group of Jesuits, along with physician Bosquez, then an aide to the Viceroy of Goa, performed autopsies on the creatures. In his professional opinion, these creatures were no different than humans, except for their fishtail. And finally, in 1810, three men discovered two children on the Isle of Man. One of them had a brown body, about two feet long, scaly purple tail, and green hair. And I've only mentioned mermaids here, you know, as they appear in Western folklore, Slavic culture, and throughout certain parts of Europe. But wherever there is water, talk of mermaids and their magic runs deep. Maybe you know Mami Wata, a water and mother spirit who rules the moon in Africa. In Norway and the Orkney Islands, there are fin folk, shapeshifters who go back and forth between living on land and in the oceans. There is also Melusine, a fairy from French folklore who is cursed to transform into a split-tailed mermaid one day out of the week. And although there is no evidence to support Melusine was ever a real-life, living, breathing person, her story is so famous that her name appears throughout historical records, with people suggesting she was wife of a duke and daughter of a Scottish king. And we cannot forget the Selkies. We will never forget the selkies (laughs) and their precious seal skin. Um, But yeah, we might have to save that conversation for another day just for sake of time here. Um, But I wanted to end our mermaid discussion um, with a question, listeners. And that is, you know, why do you think humans love mermaids so much? Because I was pondering this question again and again as I was doing my research and finally decided that, you know, like with all these mythical creatures we're talking about in this series, the mermaid offers a doorway into an ancient magical realm. For some of us, bodies of water, including the sea, feel like home. Perhaps because human life began in our waters and even to this day, we are completely dependent on it for survival. The deepest parts of our ocean are still a mystery, and without assistance from technology, 
this part of our world is sort of off limits to humans. So there will likely always be curiosity and wonder when it comes to what can exist and thrive naturally in places that we cannot. The mermaid also comes across quite free which feels so liberating, especially for those of us who have felt restricted and landlocked in our own lives. In Margot Datt's book, A Survival Guide for Landlocked Mermaids, she says that a mermaid is not frightened by her own duality. She is a walking contradiction of piety and lust, sobriety and ecstasy, brilliance and stubbornness, the sacred and scandalous. So dance with your own inner paradox. So, Kristen, listeners, I'd love now to visit with the she. While we've discussed the fae and the fair folk and fairies themselves on this podcast before, we've never dove into the specific lineage and story of the people known as the she. Spelled S-I-D-H-E, these beings are fairy-like creatures from the Celtic Otherworld. In Irish folklore, the she evolved from a mythological people known as the Tuatha de Danann, described by Irish folklore expert Professor Dorothy Bray, quote, These semi-divine beings, who feature in many early Irish tales, possess the power of magic. But, despite that, when the Gaels, the ancestors of the Irish, invaded, they pushed back the Tuatha de Danann. Ireland was divided between them, with the Gaels occupying the upper world and the Tuatha de Danann taking the lower world. End quote. The Tuatha de Danann, literally meaning people of the goddess Danu, Danu being a Celtic land or mother goddess. Some sources describe that Danu is Brigid's mother, a goddess we've talked about on this podcast before, and Yet, other sources describe them as being the same goddess with different names. Other sources yet describe her relationship with the fairy goddess Anya, who we've written about on the Tamed Wild blog, if you check out Spring Goddesses there. But back to the Tuatha de Danann people, these people were considered supernatural, angelic-like beings who came to Ireland and encountered two groups that they successfully overcame. The victory of these people was short-lived, however, for they were likewise conquered and, at their defeat, chose to go underground and live in barrows. This new habitat led to another name when they became known as the She. She literally means a mound, and since the Danon people were associated with mounds in the earth, they became known as the people of the She. The more common, widely known name of fairy came from the unwillingness of people to call the she or Danon folk by their name, for it was considered bad luck. Other names were then created, which you may be familiar with, such as hill folk, the gentry, we folk, good folk, blessed folk, good neighbors, fair folk, and then shortened to fairy. The she are associated with many supernatural abilities and superstitions, which you may observe in your daily life without even realizing it, believed to live side by side with the human world, both beneficial and harmful interactions then, of course, take place. 
If you've ever heard of the myth of the changeling, fairies were feared to be interested in stealing people, especially babies of new mothers, and if someone took ill, they could be accused of being a changeling themselves, left by the she in place of the original individual. Kristen, you wrote a piece about the changeling on the Tamed Wild blog saying, quote, Fairies were also envious of newborns and young children's purity, and were especially drawn to blonde hair and light eyes, although fairies were some of the most beautiful creatures in the magical realm. Some people insist that they were jealous of a baby's natural good looks. They grew stronger by feeding off the love that human children showered upon their parents, whether they be human or otherwise. And when fairies grow old, they would volunteer as changelings, for in their old age, being coddled and cared for by loving parents was the ideal way to spend their elder years, end quote. Listeners, definitely check out this fairy mythology piece for more on changelings. I just love it, Kristen. Thank you. And beyond the she themselves, the dreaded slua she, which listeners, forgive my pronunciation, all of these upcoming words, I'm doing my best. Um, But this was an evening cavalcade, so sort of out to do mischief or harm, which almost reminds me of kind of like wild hunt vibes of, Mm -hmm. of fairies, but not always considered malevolent. Fairies were welcomed when they helped the poor or did chores, left money for people or endowed them with great talent. So, so of course they were not always considered problematic. The uncertainties that these creatures presented made people seek various protections for themselves against fairy magic. Among the measures taken were putting iron on a barn or a house, which you might recognize the familiar horseshoe over a door, or tying on a red ribbon or religious amulet to your body. Isolated trees and bushes were regarded to be the she's domain and therefore to be left untouched. We talked about this in our Tales of Ash episode where we described a highway that was built around one sacred ash tree and how the DeLorean car company removed one of these trees before meeting the company's demise. The other world or realm of the she could be entered through these trees or other auspicious locations like fairy rings, portals, liminal spaces, the banks of rivers, standing stones, dusk, and dawn. If a person was taken to the land of the she, cautionary tales warned not to partake of the food if you ever wished to return to the mortal realm again, and if people spent too much time with the fair folk, they could get what was called fairy stroke and become all-knowing yet foolish or even stuck in the land of the she forever. I had honestly not put together the banshee and the she until researching this podcast, though I have, of course, been familiar with both of their names, and now it also makes perfect sense. But the banshee or banshee, spelled B-E-A-N-S-I-D-H-E, which means woman of the she, has come to indicate any supernatural woman of Ireland who announces a coming death by wailing and keening, also associated with the goddess Brigid. Other varieties of she include the Scottish banshee. So this banshee, known as the washing woman, is seen in lonely places beside a stream or a pool. 
washing the blood from linen and grave clothes of those who are about to die. Her characteristics vary depending on the locality and differing traditions ascribed to her powers of imparting knowledge or granting of wishes if she is approached with caution. The banshee is sometimes said to sing a mournful dirge as she washes the clothing of someone who is about to meet a sudden death by violence. She is often so focused and absorbed in her washing and her singing that sometimes she can be captured. If a person is to seize a hold of the washing woman after approaching her stealthily, then she will reveal to them who it is about to die and also will grant this person three wishes. She's sometimes described as having only one nostril, a protruding front tooth, or even having red webbed feet. One popular Highland story, which I had to include here because of its tie with mermaids, Kristen, connected the washing of death with the so-called Mermaid of Loch Slynn. This is a maiden from Cromarty who was walking along a path by the side of the loch one Sabbath morning, and after turning a corner, she saw another tall woman standing in the water on a stone carrying a bludgeon. And then nearby, she observed more than 30 smocks and shirts, all smeared with blood. Shortly following the appearance of this figure and the sighting, the roof of Fern Abbey collapsed during worship service, burying the congregation and killing 36 people. There is also the story of the Leandin she or the fairy lover, and this figure from Irish folklore is depicted as a beautiful woman of the she who takes a human lover. Lovers of fairies are said to live brief, though inspired lives, and the poet W.B. Yeats popularized his own version of the fairy lover. As he imagined it, the Leannan she is depicted as a beautiful muse who offers inspiration to an artist in exchange for love and devotion, although the supernatural affair leads to madness and eventual death for the artist. Quote, the Lian and she, fairy mistress, seeks the love of mortals. If they refuse, she must be their slave. If they consent, they are hers and can only escape by finding another to take their place. The fairy lives on their life and they waste away. Death is no escape from her. She is the Gaelic muse, for she gives inspiration to those she persecutes. The Gaelic poets die young, for she is restless, and will not let them remain long on earth, this malignant phantom. End quote. There is also the tale of the cat Sith, or a fairy cat, who is a creature from Celtic mythology, said to resemble a large black cat with a white spot on its chest. Legend has it that this spectral cat haunts the Scottish Highlands. Some common folklore suggests that the cat this was not a fairy, but instead a witch who could transform into a cat nine times, which is perhaps where the nine lives of a cat originated. The people of the Scottish Highlands did not trust this fairy cat, and they believed that it could steal a person's soul before being claimed by the gods, by passing over a corpse before burial. Because of this, ritual methods of distraction, such as games of leaping and wrestling, catnip, riddles, and music would be employed to keep this cat she away from the room in which the corpse lay. 
In addition, there would be no fires where the body lay, as it said that this cat was attracted to the warmth. And on Samhain, it was believed that the she-cat would bless any house that was left a saucer of milk out for it to drink. And those houses that did not put out a saucer of milk would be cursed into having all of their cow's udders go dry. And lastly, there are legends of the Sith or the fairy dog. The fairy dog is thought to make its home in the clefts of rock and to roam the moors of the highlands. It is usually described as having a shaggy, dark green coat and being as large as a small cow. According to legend, the creature was capable of hunting silently, but would occasionally let out three terrifying barks and only three, that could be heard for miles by those listening for it, even for those out to sea. Those who hear the barking of the fairy dog must reach safety by the third bark or be overcome with terror to the point of death. And so, what is so fascinating about the she? These strange beings remind us that magic is real and that there is more than meets the eye of our physical earth. The other world's existence instructs us in living a more enchanted life, one with and in relationship with the earth, the people that live under its mounds and at its liminal crossroads. The she reminds us to be in right relationship, to tend what needs to be tended to, and that gifts are a love language appreciated by everyone. Yeats wrote, Come, fairies, take me out of this dull world, for I would ride with you upon the wind and dance upon the mountains like a flame. End quote. A call to the muse, a call to the other world. And with that, we are signing off for the day. Listeners, if you have any mermaid, she, or fair folklore, send us a message on Instagram or email us at podcast at tamedwild.com. Thank you so much for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kate Ballou and Kristen Lizenby. You can find us online at K8Ballou and at East and Alchemy. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at tamedwild or on the blog tamedwild.com. Tune into next week's episode for Mythological Creatures Part 3. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mode it be or something better. Until next time.